Shiver. CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there from 1960, Oliver Cool. Oliver Cool. And today in the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with the rockabilly bastard himself, the rockabilly Rasputin. B-movie legend, Johnny Legend. Johnny Legend, today on the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. And he's going to tell us all about Oliver Cool and a bunch of other tracks that he was involved in or recommended. And his entire life that he documents amazingly through these series of emails Johnny Legend sends out of obscure YouTube links. It's one of the many things that Johnny Legend does, aside from wrestling and rock and roll and uh, <clears throat> making some blue movies too. So today on Donard Ward Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Johnny Legend. And to prepare you for Johnny Legend, thought, you, thought I would play a bunch of 
Johnny Legend. We're going to hear right now, and this sort of summarizes Johnny Legend. I've played this before in an Ardwater Human Serviette radio show. This summarizes Johnny Legend. This is the song Pipeline, you know, the instrumental song Pipeline, the legendary surf song Pipeline, but this is Johnny Legend's version where he puts vocals on Pipeline. I love that. That shows Johnny Legend and what he does, putting vocals to an instrumental surf classic. So here's Johnny Legend with Pipeline, and then a whole bunch of other Johnny Legend tracks, and then an interview with Johnny Legend on Denardoir, the Human Serviette Radio Show.
Sylvester's putting down He took some loots and got funky Oh, he took some loots and got funky Well, once he got hip, he got spunky He took some loots and got funky Oh, sweet Bobette, she was all alone Product of a broken home She decided just to end it all one day Despair weighed her down like a stone But then into her life stepped a dude A who proceeded to hand her a loot you know, last I heard, she was a doing okay. Walk around a Frisco Bay. She took some loots and got funky. Oh, she took some loots and got funky. Now she, she, she does a dog and she does a monkey. She took some loots and got funky. Go! Just can't relate to the madness And you're so tired of hanging around Well, it's your fight, cure for the blues It's a sweet little script for some moods 
You just hit on a couple of ludes every night Brother, soon you'll be feeling alright I, 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 Just take some ludes and get funky oh, Just take some ludes and get funky You'll be walking around like a junkie Yeah, Just take some ludes and get funky Woo!
And you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And we have a caller on the line right now. Hello, are you there, caller? I had a caller. I'm the real thing. I'm, uh, I, don't, I don't make calls. I just take calls, and I, uh, I basically call the shots worldwide. So I don't know about calling me a caller. Who are Am you? Who are you? Please tell the people. Who are you? Well, I think I might be Johnny Legend, uh, the the you know the the better great than never, one of the top human beings on the planet, the most famous person you never heard of. Uh, what more can I? What more can I tell you, Johnny Legend? Yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say, Johnny Legend, welcome back to the Nardwar to Human yes. Serviette radio show. You are not that legend, are you? You're not that John Legend. For the people that may not have heard you on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, you're not the other John no, no. Legend. No, 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 that's a totally different entity. Him and I uh, have an understanding. We both coexist in a very, you know, wild universe. I've never had a problem with uh, being confused with him, believe it or not, and I don't think he's had one with me. Uh, We kind of swim in different circles, and uh, it it has not been a problem. I mean, I'm kind of a, you know, I study a lot of unusual things, so over the years I look at things like, for example, uh, if you ask one person who Gene Simmons is, they'll say, oh, she's this great actress that was in all these great movies in the 40s and 50s. And you ask uh, certain some people who think they're more hip and music-oriented, they'll say, well, Gene Simmons, of course, the guy in Kiss. And then you ask some older record collectors who Gene Simmons is, and they'll say, well, he recorded a song called Haunted House in the early 60s. So, you know, you also got Jerry Lewis, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, George Hamilton, the famous actor, and George Hamilton the third, and James Dean and Jimmy Dean is another great example, right? Uh, people don't get them confused too often. So, I, I'm kind of, I kind of study these types of things, and uh, I find them kind of fascinating. Let's not forget Spike Jones, the incredible band leader, and some other guy with a slightly different spelling, who's a modern uh, filmmaker. And don't you have like Spike Jones's suit too? Yeah, I actually, uh, what happens is my best friend, going back to grammar school, he collects these things, and he actually owns, he's the curator of Spike Jones' original suit, so he keeps the suit in, in custody and keeps it clean and in repair, and when I need it, he lets me wear it, because he's always been a collector, basically, and he knows how to take care of things, whereas I'm uh, not really a curator, collector of things like that, so it's better off in somebody's hands where it's pretty safe if you know what i mean you are also a rock and roller because i'm saying you have a suit you wear a suit on stage just to tell the people that may not have heard you on an ardward human serviette radio show before you've been on a couple times johnny legend on an ardward human serviette radio show and you've never forgiven me for giving airtime to tommy lee have you you've never forgiven me for that well it wasn't so much that i had to go on hold for a half hour or so while that guy was yam beating his gums and yammering away and boring everybody to death so i like to bring it up and rub your nose in it you know it's 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 fun to do but uh it's always a pleasure to get back on the air yeah i don't remember when the that was in the late 90s i believe or mid 90s when we had that problem Yes, um, when you were coming to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, showing a whole bunch of stuff at the Blinding Light Cinema. I think you were doing an Andy Kaufman retrospective, and I think you were showing The Saddest, too, the movie The Saddest. The, the Saddest, The Saddest, let's get it right. The Saddest, one of the greatest films ever made, starring Archal Jr., who's still a very close friend of mine. Actually, we've gotten to be very close friends in the last 
several years since 2009. We finally we finally got together, and we've been kind of conspiring ever since then. Uh, we've done shows together at the Ponderosa Stomp in New Orleans, and uh, that was a one week long film festival I did at the Blinding Light. Was that the name of it? Yes, it was. Um, and that was back in the year 2000, if I'm not mistaken. And the guy who put that together and I are still good friends on Facebook. And uh, we, we exchange messages pretty often. He might even be listening right now. Yeah, shout out to Alex McKenzie. I think it was Alex McKenzie. He was the one that ran the amazing Blinding Light in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And we're speaking here live on the Nardwire to Human Soviet radio show to Johnny Legend. And Johnny Legend, before you came on, I played a whole bunch of tracks related to Johnny Legend. I was wondering if you could tell the people a little bit about what I played. I began the show with Oliver Cool. Oliver Cool. What was Oliver Cool? Okay, I, I, that was something I posted on Facebook a week or two ago because back in the 60, I think it was around 1960, KFWB, which was our number one, they had the monopoly. They were the number one rock and roll channel in L.A. and uh, called Color Radio, Channel 98. And they used to have a pick of the week, and they'd play it all week long, like once an hour. And usually at the end of the week, the song would hit the charts. At least it would make it into the... They had a top 40, so it would make it at least into the 30s. That was a very unique example of a record that played for the entire week, and then the next day it was never heard from again. And I I hadn't thought of it in 50 years, let's say. I was, you know, like in my crib when it was originally being played. And all of a sudden I said, you know, nowadays with YouTube, I bet it's out there. So I looked it up, and there it was. <clears throat> it just was a weird novelty record that came out. I thought it, it did vanish completely. Then I looked it up, and, you know, naturally on YouTube, somebody has a copy of the record. The B-side is up. There's some other Oliver Cool things, and there's some information about who he was. Because I started thinking maybe it was uh, Kim Fowley or somebody like that, or one of the Zappa people. or You know, it was such a weird record that I thought it might be somebody that had some notoriety. And it, it was some showbiz character, but it wasn't anybody that we all know to this day. Then we followed so, it up by Johnny Legend Pipeline. I always play this when I talk to you, Johnny Legend, your version of Pipeline, where you take a surf song and you put vocals to it, which I think symbolizes what you do, Johnny. Like, nobody else does what you do. So we play Johnny Legend Pipeline and Johnny Legend Rockabilly Bastard Rollin' Rock from 1980. Those two. What can you tell the people about those two tracks? Okay, well, Rockabilly Bastard was kind of a signature song I came up with because... I started calling myself the Rockabilly Bastard. You know, Ray Campy was the king of the slap and bass, and, and I had <coughs> I, I needed a, a good, solid nickname. So I became the Rockabilly Bastard, and I wrote the song, and then for many years my band was called Johnny Legend and his Rockabilly Bastards. So that's what happened. Then at one point it became Johnny Legend and his Naked Apes, and now I have new bands that I use, so I kind of go with... The, you, like in right now in Oakland, I have the Chuckleberries, who's my current band where I live now, and they're they're a self-contained band that exists on their own. So I use their name, and uh, then I go on the road and I use different bands. So I usually use the name the band actually already has, as opposed to when I used to, you know, let's say travel around and have a band using my my name as the Rockabilly Bastards or the Naked Apes. <laughs> which was inspired by a, by a Johnny Crawford, uh, Hugh Hefner movie of many years ago. And what about... And, of course, a famous novel, yes. What about Pipeline? Pipeline was another example. Um, I was suddenly sitting around one night, and I envisioned a, a, a lounge guy, let's say some lounge guy from the early 60s, 
And one night he had a brainstorm and he wrote lyrics to Pipeline and he thought he was set for life and he started doing it live and at the clubs and it didn't quite kick in. So here we are 40, 50 years later and he's still in the lounges performing it and he never quite made it, but he thought he would. That's the point of view. It's, I did a deadly serious, like let's say a Tony Clifton type of guy, only for real, might have done as a lounge artist in the early 60s. That's what kind of inspired me. And... uh I don't know, a lot of people like Dee Dickerson think it's the second most brilliant thing I've ever done next to Pencil Neck Geek, which, uh, by the way, I wrote for the wrestler whose who's wardrobe I still wear, which we were discussing a couple minutes ago, the red sequin jacket and the pants I wear, came from the original, these aren't, you know, disco fashions or anything, these are original Freddie Blassie fashions going back to the 50s and 60s, and I still have the original outfits and I still wear them whenever I do a live show. Also played Johnny Legend and the Rockabilly Bastards Take Some Ludes and Get Funky, plus I yeah. played Rollin' the Rock. Okay, now those two are, are quite unique. Take Some Ludes and Get Funky was written by my very good friend Pete Cicero, who may even be listening. He's up in Seattle now, and he was kind of like became my songwriter back in the 70s, he wrote, Are You Hep To It? Take Some Ludes and Get Funky, Brand New Baby. And if you got my new album, my new CD called I Itch Like a Son of a Bitch, half the album or songs by Pete Cicero. So he was in my original high school band, and he wrote a lot of really unique novelty songs over the years and really good rock and roll songs. And that, you know, back at that point in the 70s, ludes were like really fashionable and, and big time. Uh, this was, I think, a little before Bill Cosby started using them. This was in the 70s. And so we, Pete used to write a lot of whimsical drug songs. I just recorded another one called I'm Loaded uh, that's on my new album. And they were kind of like a, 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 a satirical look at the drug scene of the 70s. So Take Some Ludes and Get Funky is a song in that vein. Rolling the Rock was one of the songs that Rock and Ronnie Weiser wrote. Now, Ron didn't have no background in music, so he would occasionally write these songs, and he would try to fit as many syllables into a line as, you, as humanly possible, you know, with lines like Westwood, Tarzana, Pasadena, and Sino too. And I somehow kind of was the guy who inherited these songs that were just written down on paper with no chords or anything, so I had to hammer those out and make them into a song, I believe. That was on the very first Roll on the Rock album, and I recorded it with Billy Zoom and uh, his people. That was before I started recording with Ray Campy. So we had B Billy Zoom, Patrick Woodward, who went down with Rick Nelson on the plane. He was on bass, stand-up bass, and we had Billy Zoom's drummer. So that's how the song Roll on the Rock got recorded. Those are both songs written by other people, uh, unlike Rockabilly Bastard, which I wrote. And most of them, I'd say about... Two-thirds of my songs are written by me, a third or more written by the great Pete Cicero, and some are just unique songs I get from other areas. So keep going. And then we played Johnny Legend, Wild Wicked Wanda. Right. Now, there's a funny thing there. You may not know about this, because this, I think, might have happened since the last time we talked. But at some point in the 90s, they were making this uh, <coughs> series of upscale, uh, let's say, enlightened lesbian films on HBO. The first one was called If These Walls Could Talk, and then they made the sequel, If These Walls Could Talk too. And if you believe it or not, they used Wild Wicked Wanda in that movie. It was an HBO movie, and they actually put out a soundtrack album. So if you can find the soundtrack album for If These Walls Could Talk too, which I'll admit was written by me and is kind of a sexist song in my own unique way back in the 70s, but they actually used it in a very pro-lesbian HBO movie. 
And on the soundtrack album, I ended up being mixed in with Glenn Campbell, my friend Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics, believe it or not, who uh, produced the pilot for the Johnny Legend show, which never saw the light of day. But he's another huge fan of mine that I don't think we ever discussed. So that's the background of Wild Wicked Wanda. It's another big Johnny Legend song from the 70s, but it did have a second life in a big lesbian movie on HBO. So what do you think of that? I was thinking about all the different times that I have talked to Johnny Legend. Yes, late 90s. Then I saw you in Las Vegas, and you handed me a videotape, and I didn't realize what was on it, and I'm glad I didn't look what was on it until I got home. It was a pretty crazy blue movie that you were acting in. Right. Uh, well, I'm not sure which tape I gave you. Uh, I've, I've got a lot of those self-inflicted, uh, homegrown videos that I've made myself. Was this, this was still back in the VHS days, is that correct? Yes, it had some wrestlers and some naked ladies, and the wrestlers also were naked, too. Okay, um, that was a mixture of things. Uh, the, the naked ladies, I believe, was from my photo session for the cover of the Bitchin' CD that I put out in, in the late 90s. Uh, that was uh, uh, a couple of girls I still know to this day. We're very good friends, Leah and uh, Randy Rage, and uh, and we were friends back then. They both worked in the in the adult industry, and they were dancers and actresses. And then uh, I made a film called Nymph- Nympho. What was it called? Nympho Libre, which was a masked Mexican sex wrestling movie. It was hardcore porno that I made back around 2000. And then it eventually came out on DVD in 2006 and seven, And that was just uh, an attempt to do a mass Mexican sex wrestling hardcore film before anybody else did it. So Leah is one of the stars of that, and she goes back to the 90s. She used to come to my shows in San Jose, and she had to use a fake ID because she was too young to actually get into the clubs where I was playing. So she's been a very good, devoted friend and fan of mine ever since going back to the to the early 90s. And she's, I, I live up in Oakland, California now, and she lives in San Jose. So she's only about 40 minutes away from where I live right now. So we're still very good friends. So those I saw the naked it, women, and those were the naked wrestlers that were on that video I gave you. And then I talked to you sometime in the 2000s, and I think the last time I actually did speak to you was 2012. And since okay. then, Johnny Legend, I've been keeping up to date on what you've been doing with these amazing YouTube link emails you've been sending out. Do you think you can tell the people yeah. about these things that you've been doing and how people can sign up for them? Because they are, Johnny absolutely incredible the most well documented annotated youtube links of obscure movies that are out there you take an incredible amount of time to put this together it's so awesome i Pe- sure do and people learn an awful lot what can you tell people about this and how can people sign up to your list because it isn't okay. through facebook or anything it's like actually through email yeah actually uh if you want to contact me through facebook don't send me a friend request i'm backed up about a thousand friend requests, there's nothing I can do, but you can go to my Facebook page anytime. We don't have to be friends, and you can send me a message on Facebook. Okay, you just go to Johnny Legend. That's real easy. If you don't mind, I'll give you my email address because I have no problem spreading that out to the world at large. Uh, my email address is johnnylegendrocks at gmail.com. That's J O H N N Y L E G E N D R O C K S at gmail.com. And you can email me about any of these various things. Now, this YouTube thing is a new art form that I kind of fell into by accident around November of 2013. I was putting together, of all things, a little Christmas collection of YouTube weird things because I made a, a movie you probably haven't heard of called Christmas in Acid Land 
That's a two-and-a-half-hour extravaganza that I show in theaters with an intermission. And then I followed that with TV in Acid Land. These are both things I designed to show in movie theaters. And then I put them out on DVD also. But that got me going. I, I decided to try to recreate those using YouTube links in uh, November of 2013. And next thing you know, I was into a whole new art form, which I'm still doing. I've done about 65 of these, maybe 70, where I take a theme or a person like Charles Bronson or James Best, who I did recently, and I cover their entire career and life in a series of, of uh, emails uh, with this breathtaking collection of primarily YouTube links. Sometimes I use links from other sources, and I also include links to articles and IMDb and, and Wikipedia. But I don't, I don't know, maybe you've, or you, you get around a lot. I've never seen anybody else on Earth that's trying to do something like this. No, not and at all. I, it is so documented, Johnny. It's amazing. And the stuff you have there is like Ed Wood Jr. Like, for example, Ed Wood Jr. meets Orson Welles. What can you tell people about that? That was something, like, when you think about the Ed Wood, like, maybe for the people who don't know, who was Ed Wood Jr. and who was Orson Welles? Well, the funny thing is, see, that was an actual scene in the in the Tim Burton movie Ed Wood with Johnny Depp and I think Vincent D'Onofrio playing Orson Welles. But for years, way before that film was made, I used to speculate that Ed Wood had probably run into Orson Welles and that they would have gotten along just fine. And I, I even guessed a few times that they probably would have met at Musso's because Orson Welles used to hang around there, and Ed Wood lived about a block away from Musso's in those later years. So that. The fact that that became a fictitious scene in a major movie didn't surprise me in the slightest. And I went back, as you noticed, and documented things where, where Ed Wood and Orson Welles were almost tripping over each other in the late 60s uh, because of a mutual friend of, of theirs and mine, Ed DePriest, was actually making, shooting a, mil, a film, One Million ACDC, written by Ed Wood. And at the same time, Gary Graver was filming his movie, he was filming Orson Welles' movie, and Orson was, was renting Ed Dupree's house to shoot scenes for his film. So Ed Wood and Orson Welles were like literally, you know, almost tripping over each other in the late 60s. So I didn't think that was far-fetched at all, and I went ahead and documented that in one of my YouTube collections, uh, which I thought was kind of fascinating, you know. And that's the kind of thing I do in these collections. I put together a whole lot of unique Oh, you know, one one of a kind things that I I I constantly discovered things every day. I, I find out something new. Like I didn't realize that Elizabeth Scott, the great actress, when she made Loving You, she did, she voluntarily decided that was going to be her final film. She only had a twelve year career, and she retired at the age of thirty five uh, with Loving You, which was produced by Hal Wallace, who some people speculate actually also discovered Elvis for his film career back uh, when he made Love Me Tender. And then, and then, believe it or not, uh, Liz, uh, the one I just mentioned, was around until January of this year. She was around for 58 years after she retired in Loving You, which I think is kind of astounding. And she, she made three TV appearances and one movie with Michael Caine called Pulp in the early 70s, but she basically just voluntarily decided to retire in 1957 with the movie Loving You with Elvis. And that's documented in my new Links of Poppin' 3, which you're about to get. And again, we're speaking here live to Johnny Legend. And if you want to get Johnny Legend's email updater with all these cool YouTube links, people should email again. What's your email, Johnny, one more time for the people? Sure. JohnnyLegendRocks at gmail.com. That's Johnny, J-O-H-N-N-Y-L-E-G-E-N-D-R-O-C-K-S at gmail.com. 
and uh, I will try to, you know, let you know how you can get these collections, because, you know, this is a labor of love. I just started doing it. It involves hundreds of hundreds, actually thousands of hours. Each of the emails I send out, you probably noticed, is probably the equivalent of 10 or 15 DVDs, for example. You get one email, and there's like 10 to 15, you know, there's, you've gotten so to date at least about a thousand hours of material on these various collections I've sent out. So that, in that sense, they're really astounding because I find them much easier to deal with than, than DVDs, Blu-rays. Um, you know, Netflix streaming is nice. Uh, you know, Amazon is nice and Amazon Prime. And the Dish Network is fine. But these YouTube collections, I find myself watching them 90% of the time now over those other things because they're so easy to just click on them. I have wireless headphones in my bedroom and, and, and the quality and, and the vastness of material available is just mind-boggling, you know. I mean, uh, like I said, I'm doing Links of Poppin' 3 right now, and I, you know, I've, got a, a, I've got stuff by William Castle that no one's ever seen before. Uh, I've got some really interesting thing on Elvis that I'm doing, uh, just a whole lot of different categories. I'm even doing a little tribute to Sammy Tong, who you might remember was the co-star of Bachelor Father, uh, an Asian actor who was very interesting going back to the 50s and 60s, and he ended up being heavily in debt to Asian monsters, and he committed suicide, I think, in 61, when his, when the, when his second uh, Mickey Rooney uh, series uh, failed on TV, and Sammy Tong was the co-star, and he decided to commit suicide. I've got a little tribute to him in my latest collection. Johnny Legend, Los Angeles, California, where you're from, did you ever taste Father Yod's salad? I don't think so, because I don't remember the name of it, and I've tasted a lot of things. Uh, Did you ever time. go to his restaurant, the Source restaurant? Did you have any interactions with Father Yod? Uh, okay, okay, you mean the Source on, sun, on, on Sunset, going towards the Sunset Strip. Yeah, like there's a scene in Annie Hall there where Woody Allen orders a plate of alf- alpha sprouts. Mashed yeast. He, he orders the mashed yeast. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I kind of felt about that place about the same as Woody Allen did. You know, I had a lot of friends who were vegetarians. In fact, one of my best friends, uh, James Healy, I wanted to say hello to him because, believe it or not, he's my roommate up here now, and he's in Vancouver right now as we speak today. He's up there visiting family, uh, and he's a vegetarian, so I got nothing against uh, I think my sister's a vegetarian, too. I haven't checked lately. But I had a kind of whimsical take on that going back. So I was kind of making fun of the source back then. I don't know if I ever actually ate there. I was probably making jokes about the place. But I do know it's there. And uh, is it still there? I haven't looked in many decades. No, it's long gone. I guess I was just curious if you ever went there because the people that went there, as I mentioned, lots of interesting people showed up. They're like Marlon Brando, Lennon, Beattie, Julie Christie, etc., etc. Do you have any connection? Yeah, I, I, I ran into all those same people, but it was luckily at different places. I ran into Brando at a screening of 2001 at the, at the old Warner Cinerama Theater in the late 60s, back when he had that Indian girlfriend. I ran into him in the audience there. And uh, I'm trying to remember, I think I ran into Lennon at the Troubadour once or twice. Um, so I used to be able to run into most of these people, and I might have gone to the source a couple times just with friends of mine who were vegetarians back then. You know, but I didn't make a habit of it. Uh, you know, what can I tell you? Uh, keep going. You're, you're hitting a lot of interesting points here. Uh, Johnny Legend, tonight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Brian Wilson is playing. I tried to get an interview with Brian Wilson. No luck. 
But I'm speaking here live to Johnny Legend on an Ardwarty Human Serviette Radio Show, also from Los Angeles, California. Johnny Legend, Dennis Wilson. You operated on Dennis Wilson? Well, I don't know if you call it an operation. The day I met that, now here's what happened. Let me go back real quick and fill you in because our very first band, The Seeds of Time, as you know, from 1966, um, Sheldon Greenfield lived down the block from us, and his daughter had been married to Dennis Wilson, and he became our first manager very briefly for a while in 1966. So we we pulled all of our money together. Well, we were still in high school and had a one-hour session at that famous, what was it, Western Recorders, where all those famous uh, Beach Boys and those various other things were done. I think uh, part of the Elvis uh, comeback special might have been done there. So we put all of our, we, we had to save up $55 and we went there and Sheldon Greenfield brought Brian Wilson to our very first recording session. I'll never forget it. Here I am, a high school kid in 1966 and Brian Wilson comes to my recording session. Unbelievable. Okay, now that was just a fluke. Fast forward into the late 70s, I'm living in Venice Beach and Dennis Wilson happened to be living a few blocks away from me and friends of mine were going over and bringing in demos of, I was recording my first album at Rolling Rock, which was my first full-fledged album. So finally one day they said, Dennis wants to meet you. So I get over there, and Dennis, he'd been flipping out. He'd heard, a, he'd heard a rough mix of a song I was doing called Mexican Love, which strangely enough I didn't actually release until the 90s with Pipeline on uh, Johnny Bartlett's label, and I just released it again last year on, 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 uh, on, on, on my Finland album, I Itch Like a Son of a Bitch. Uh, dedicated to Dennis Wilson because he was completely obsessed with the song. It was written by Pete Cicero. So the day I met him, he had this, you know, it was in that late 70s period. He go, Johnny, Johnny Legend, listen, I got to talk to you. The thing is Mexican love. And now, you know, I used to be in this band, and I tried to make a movie once Mexican love. He would end each sentence with Mexican love. And so we that late that night, about 3 or 4 in the morning, he took his foot and he put it up on a table and handed me this butcher knife and he said, Johnny, I just want you to know, I know all these people. I used to be in this band. I got these hundreds of people claim they're friends of mine. Right now, you're the only person on this entire planet I trust. I got. I walked around today barefoot all over Venice. You saw me doing it. He said, I got some glass on my foot. I want you to take this butcher knife. Don't worry, I have no sensation in this leg. I want you to go in with that knife and get the glass out. Don't worry, I feel no pain. So I actually had to sit there at 3 or 4 in the morning with candles lit in this, in this uh, little room in Venice trying to dig a glass out of Dennis Wilson's foot. So that was the operation. And then we, we remained very good friends for the next several years while he was still, you know, on, on planet Earth. And uh, we had some real interesting times, but that's how I got to know him. He, uh, he was getting my Rolling Rock recordings, and he knew about Pencil Neck Geek. He was a huge Pencil Neck Geek fan, which I'd recorded back in 76. And believe it or not, because I forget, though, who, what was the girlfriend of his that was in Fleetwood Mac? I love to be able to say I forgot her name. Uh, do you remember which one it was? Stevie Nicks. I think it was the other one, Christy uh, McVie. What was? Yeah, Christy McVie and Dennis Wilson were like, were like you know, boyfriend and girlfriend, and they used to go out on his yacht and probably get stoned, and and they would and they would listen to Pencil Neck Geek, and so for some reason the whole band Fleetwood Mac became obsessed with Pencil Neck Geek, the song I'd written for Freddie Blassie, and I I had to go down to a Fleetwood Mac concert one night, and I had backstage passes, and they took about 50 of my Pencil Neck Geek t-shirts away from me. I never heard from them again, and they were talking about, well, we got to do something with this Blassie guy. we got to bring him out and have him introduce us on our live shows or whatever. It was 
so weird, but that started with Dennis Wilson and Christy McVeigh, I believe, on Dennis's yacht back when he had one. Johnny Legend, so that, so, how much yeah. does John Nawad Holmes cost to hire? Like, you hired John Nawad Holmes. Uh, believe it or not, it cost me absolutely nothing except for the lab cost. What happened with that is I was making the movie Teenage Cruisers, very low budget. We originally were going to just take pre pre-existing 16-millimeter loops, they called them. Those were old, you know, 8- to 10-minute films that people made that they sold to the adult bookstores. And back then, people were going around and taking about six, seven, or eight of them, shooting some new footage with a host and putting it out as a new feature film in 35-millimeter. So when I started on Teenage Cruisers, originally I was just going to use pre-existing loops. Now, the John Holmes footage came from another movie, all the underwater scenes and all that, so I inherited that footage from the guy who had worked on that movie. That was called Sexual Freedom in Denmark, or one of those early pre-Deep Throat movies. So I got the John Holmes footage for free, and then I gave him the name Moby, and then I edited it very cleverly in with new scenes and made it look like it had all been done in 1975 and 6. And then, of course, I got to know Holmes in that time period, so we were very good friends, and he always thought it was really funny that I had him starring in a movie I made, even though we'd never met back then. So that's how I got John Holmes. It cost me the lab cost of uh, of blowing the 16-millimeter up to 35-millimeter and whatever I spent in post-production adding music to it and everything. Because I added a, a Matt Curtis song slipping in. I also added an Elvis Wayne song to the movie, I Want to Eat Your Pudding, you know, that kind of thing. Johnny Legend, what can you tell the people about Laurel Canyon, the place, and Laurel Canyon, the porn star? Uh, I don't know much about Laurel Canyon as a porn star. Laurel Canyon, of course, in the, you know, in the mid to late 60s, I was hanging out there a lot. I, I went to Frank Zappa's house. I think the one he sold one time, he had a bowling alley in the basement and things like that. I forget why he sold the house. But I was actually there with uh, Thule Cooperberg and I think Ed Sanders of the Fugs. Uh, there, was a big going, there was a big going away party for the house because Zappa sold the house. And I always remembered that the Fugs were in town during that, that weekend, and I got to hang out with them there. Uh, a lot of different things happened in Laurel Canyon. I sometimes can't remember who was there. I used to go to Peter Tork's house, and I think that was in Laurel Canyon, although I'm not sure. Um, we used to hang out there a lot. I, think, I, think I, de- I never actually lived there officially, but we had a lot of friends who lived in Laurel Canyon. So, I, you know, obviously in that time period, I spent a lot of time there. And I don't remember who Laurel Canyon, the porn star, is at all, strangely and, enough. And we're speaking here to Johnny Legend, live on the Nardwarty Human Serviette Radio Show. If anybody has any questions for Johnny Legend, 604-822-2487. That's 604-UBCCATR. Or you can also tweet at Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R. And we actually have a tweet question already for you, Johnny Legend, and it's from Luda617. And Luda617 says, Ask Johnny Legend if he or anyone he knew was ever in a Roger Corman movie in L.A. I just watched an interesting documentary on YouTube about Corman. What a life. Uh, yeah, I was actually, I actually had a very strong connection to Roger Corman, and I was supposed to be in that documentary. They called me several times, and we never actually got it organized, but I knew, uh, I still know a lot of people that were in Corman movies. I was very close friends with Leo Gordon. I went to college with his daughter, Tara Gordon. We're still very close friends. I was friends with his wife. We had the same agent, 
and he was uh, one of the main Corman stars. Uh, I, 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 my friend and Eric and I did a big co- tribute to Roger Corman back at the, at Mogul's, a little a little film theater in ho- in Hollywood back in the early to mid nineties. And Corman actually came to the show, and we had Leo Gordon there, and we had Jonathan. Uh, got him forget you know the guy who started Little Shop Wars, and uh, and Dick Miller and a lot of these people. You know, several of them are still around. And I was also very close with Wyatt Ordung, who directed Corman's very first movie, Monster from the Ocean Floor. Believe it or not, Corman's very first movie he produced but didn't direct, and a very weird guy named Wyatt Ordung, who later wrote Robot Monster, one of the most notorious movies of all time, he actually directed Corman's first movie. And Corman used to come to my friend Eric Caden and I and ask if he could borrow our 16 prints, because we had 16 prints of a lot of his movies, and he wasn't. He always said, "I, I don't like dwelling on the past. I, I like to think of the future." So back back in the day, which was the '80s and '90s, lots of times they'd be doing tributes to Corman at theaters. And here, as people would contact us and say, "Hey, do you have some of Rogers' movies? Because we don't have them anywhere." We even had a bad sixteen in front of the Intruder that they used to show sometimes at theaters with him in person. So I've I've had a lot of interesting connections with Corman over the years. Did you get his stuff um, from a dumpster? Where did you get all the movies? Were they from dumpsters? Where did you get them? No, 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 no. We, 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 were, up there. we were actually film collectors. You buy these from people all over the world. There's a magazine called Big Reel that back in the 70s and 80s, uh, it used to be a really huge uh, cottage industry, people collecting films. And pe- there was a marketplace, and Big Reel was the Bible of film collecting, people would sell, there would be thousands of prints every month for sale in the big reel. Eric collected probably six, seven hundred sixty millimeter movies over the years, and we have a handful of 35 millimeters. Uh, we're also, we were also the world uh, theatrical distributors in all the Hershey Gordon Lewis films, and I would like to dedicate uh, this uh, interview to my good friend Eric Caden, who left us just a, a couple months ago on May 17th. Eric passed away. And uh, there's been a huge void in the whole cult universe ever since that happened. And uh, so, yeah, no, we we, no, we didn't used to find anything in dumpsters. We collected them officially because, you know, film collecting is a thing that isn't, you know, for a while in the 70s there was a very brief period where they tried to stop film collecting and make it a legal situation. Then they realized it was totally ridiculous. So basically you can own any movie ever made, Gone with the Wind, Star Wars, it doesn't matter. You just can't use it for commercial purposes, then you're crossing the line legally. But as a collector, you can own anything. Just like if you go to a, a, you know, a DVD or Blu-ray store and buy a movie, you know, it's the same thing if you buy a print of a movie. Johnny Legend also had another tweet from at 14s who just says, Manson? Question mark? I guess they're asking, have you ever met Charles Manson before? No, thank God I haven't. And, uh, Never have and never really wanted to. I was, you know, I was around uh, in the late 60s during that whole time period when that was going on. It was pretty uh, unsettling, as you can imagine. And uh, there were a few times when people actually were looking at me and my friends, and before, I think it was before Manson had actually been caught, and they were looking at us with these funny expressions, and I'd say, what's wrong with you, buddy? And they go, well, we've just been reading about what some of your friends have been doing. And I said, hey, man, they got nothing to do with me. I know that some of the girls that were on the fringes of the Manson scene came to parties we had in the late 60s and like that. I found out years later. I said, do you remember that couple of those chicks that showed up? Because we used to have parties with like three, 400 people showing up when we were living at a place on Sepulveda Boulevard in, in, the, in Van Nuys. 
And so apparently we rubbed elbows a couple times with a few, you know, borderline Mansonites, but I never knew any of them particularly and never really uh, knew him. Luckily, we, I, I, as far as I know, I never ran into him at any get-togethers or anything like that, so... And I've never really wanted to, so that's kind of the end of that story. Johnny Legend, you were at the Burger Boogaloo. Did you see the Pandoras? Yeah. What was the Burger Boogaloo like? That was pretty amazing. That's a new. That's an event that that's about ten to fifteen minutes away from where I live right now. And my band, the Chuckleberries, were there playing with Legendary Stardust Cowboy. My drummer Russell Kwan was there, possibly playing with the Mister. You know, the Mummies, uh, who also played. The Pandoras were there. Um, what were the Pandoras like? How did you enjoy the Pandoras? Had you seen them back I, in the eighties? I didn't get to. I didn't get to see them on this trip because they kept jockeying back and forth between two stages, and I had to stay at the main stage or lose my seat. And once you once you vacated the, the place you were sitting, you couldn't get back in the next. See, they rotated. Well, a group would play on the main stage, then the, the and the Pandoras played on the alternate stage. So I actually couldn't go there without surrendering my seat and missing the Gories and the five, six, seven, eights, who I really wanted to see from Japan, who used to idolize me. And they were there, and also the mummies were there. And uh, so I kind of had to stay in that area of the main stage. So I just hope I'll get to see the Pandoras again. So, I, you know, I used to see them a lot back, at, uh, back in, well, let's say, what would you say, the late 80s, uh, going into the early 90s, and I also knew... Uh, Got a, the one group that uh, one of the girls in the Pandoras went and formed another group that I used to see a lot, and I'm forgetting the name of it again now. The Muffs. The Muffs, yeah. The Muffs and Chris of the Muffs. Uh, the drummer was my drummer for quite a while in the 90s. So we used to share band members and things like that. You also and know L7? You also know L7? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we go back way back. Um, I, uh, uh, Danita, right, the lead singer, and a couple others. I'll tell you how far back we go. In the late 70s, right after I put out Teenage Cruisers, which played all the adult theaters in 77, it started getting rediscovered in 1978 as a cult movie. So they showed it at the New Art Theater, which is the number one revival rep theater in L.A. back then. And they showed it for New Year's Eve, believe it or not. And Danita and some of her friends all went to see it, and it changed their lives. They became almost like Moonies for the movie. So... And then, and then she saw Breakfast with Blassie somewhere over the years, which she, which was like her next favorite movie of all time. So in 1990, just to give you an example, uh, January 1990, they deregulated wrestling in California. I'd been waiting for years to be able to promote my own wrestling shows. So the third week of January 1990, I put on a huge spectacular with Eric, where we had an entire card of wrestling and an entire rock concert. So L7 headlined that show for us. And the Tommy Knockers and the Mind Readers played. And then I had a giant wrestling card with a lot of people who were future stars, like Ray Mysterio Jr. was on the show, Conan. Uh, and these are people who are still very much around. And uh, a lot of great wrestlers from the L.A. area. And it was very innovative because I was doing a lot of things ECW did five years later. I was bringing in Lucha guys. I was giving them Anglo names. I called Ray Mysterio Jr. the giant killer because he's a very tiny guy. And uh, I was bringing in stars from Mexico and giving them names like uh, the Predator and things like that. And I also was doing my really weird characters like Sister Slash, the nun from hell, who got messages from God all through her match. 
So I did that in 1990, a giant, very innovative, first-of-its-kind show, and L7 headlined that. Another, fest- another festival you played, Johnny Legend, the Waldorf Weekender. What's that like, the Waldorf Weekender? Well, now you're talking only seven, eight, seven and a half weeks ago. Today, what's today? The, today's the 24th? Yes. Okay, well, okay, yesterday was the 23rd. Uh, eight weeks ago, on May 23rd, Saturday, I headlined the Waldorf Weekender in Waldorf, Germany. And that was quite an affair. That was a three-day festival with, you know, I don't know how many groups playing, 40, 50 groups. And I was a headliner for the whole three days. I was on Saturday night at 11 o'clock. And uh, Andy Veter, who I've known for close to 25 years, was the main promoter over there. And uh, part of the celebration was my new double, my, my new CD was coming out which is my Rolling Rock Greatest Hits, which you've already got, apparently. It's got 29 tracks on it, and a double vinyl, which has all 29 tracks spread over two vinyls. So that was, that was, being, that was coming out that week, and I was headlining the, you know, the, the weekender. That was great. It was in the woods, but it was in a big auditorium, so the acoustics were really good. Uh, a band drove up from Holland to meet me and play with me, and we did an hour-plus show. You know, I can play for two hours or more nowadays. Uh, so I play as long as they love me. I've got another new band in Finland that was originally called the Psycho Bunch, led by Mika Relu, and I think you've seen my videos with those guys. And and, and they were the, and they uh, recorded my new my new CD called I Itch Like a Son of a Bitch, which came out on Blue Light last year, and that's got all my new songs, which a lot of critics have said is the best thing I've ever done. So right now I have a new CD out on Blue Light, and I got the new one from Germany that came out eight weeks ago at the Waldorf Weekender, and I thought it went really well. You've seen probably on my Facebook wall, I've got videos from the show and photos. There were about a thousand or more people there surrounding me, and as you know, I do a lot of my show from... I go out in the audience and do a huge amount of my show there. In fact, I ran into a girl uh, at the the Burger Boogaloo, who I last saw about 22 or three years ago. She came to a show of mine here in San Francisco at the bottom of the hill, and she attacked my foot, and she actually wouldn't stop until I surrendered my leg to her, and she took my sock off and inhaled my foot uh, for the next several songs. Uh, and she was at the Burger Boogaloo, and I hadn't seen her in 22 or three years. But the Waldorf Weekender was absolutely great. I'm, I'm trying to do as much stuff right now internationally as I can, because I still haven't done the Hemsby. You know, I've never played a lot of these countries like France and Spain. It's hard to believe. So right now I'm focusing my attention on trying to play these international shows. I've got a lot of, uh, you know, stuff out on CDs and vinyl right now. And uh, that's what I'm kind of focusing on along with these YouTube collections. Johnny Legend, YouTube movies, YouTube clips, the movie Head. What can you tell the people about the movie Head? You have some interesting takes on the movie Head. Well, I saw it right when it came out. You know, I, here's what's funny. I, I got to be friends with Peter Tork uh, towards the end, you know, back when he still had the house, I believe, on Royal Canyon. The monkeys had either broken up or were about to break up. And I had a friend of mine who was in my band who knew him, and so we used to go out and hang around his house. And I just remember, the, I always remember that uh, Buddy Miles and uh, Barry McGuire would show up with a bottle of Red Mountain, which was a giant bottle of wine you could get for two and a half dollars back then. It's the same stuff my friends and I drank, who I thought were, you know, because we didn't have almost any money. <coughs> so anyway, the movie Head came out, and it was basically a brain damage masterpiece, you know. Uh, I, I mean, the monkeys were 
pretty much fully aware that they reached the end of the rope. Jack Nicholson wrote it. Bob Rafelson, who became a really famous director a few a year or so later with Five Easy Pieces and a whole lot of films like that. So they 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 made it kind of knowing that it was the that it was the end of the rainbow. And I've compared it to Hell's a Pop, and you may have noticed a lot lately, which was a really great film from the '40s made by Olson and Johnson. And the film had Victor Mature, it had Annette Funicello, it had Frank Zappa, Timothy Carey, it had a really amazing cast. And it basically uses the premise that the monkeys kind of come back to the movie studio and everybody goes berserk, like they're they're a plague, you know. It's like, oh my God, not these guys. And everything, the movie kind of throws in everything but the kitchen sink. So I really admired that. Uh, You know, I didn't really like much that the monkeys did, although I did enjoy some of their songs. Uh, they were obviously a manufactured group, uh, you know, and I was around Peter Tork some. I got to see him again at Chiller uh, a couple years ago. That was kind of interesting. I reminded him I used to hang around his house, and he got this kind of funny look on his face, like, oh, my God. Um, and you are so Johnny that, Legend. That's all I can say. The movie head was, was just a really, really interesting uh, uh, thing for, for its time period, you know. Johnny like Legend, I said, a brain damage masterpiece of sorts. Is any of your stuff in the Smithsonian Institute? Because you have so many neat little tidbits and stuff from movies, rock and roll stuff. Is any of your stuff in the Smithsonian? Have they approached you at all? I don't. I don't. I've never had any dealings with them. You know, I've been working on three autobiographies now for over ten years, and I'm just trying to get some publisher to wake up and contact me and say, "Well, here, let's sign a deal. Let's make a deal." I've got. I've got publishers who occasionally get a hold of me and say. Hey, you got any of those uh, autobiographies ready? If you do, I'll put it out. But I need a, I need a publisher to contact me, make make some kind of form, you know, slightly formal arrangement, because as you know, my life is so varied. I, I've, I've literally, I realized if I tried to compress it into even a thousand page book, it would, I'd, I'd have to leave out so much. It would be, it would be criminal negligence. So I've done one autobiography covering my musical career, which is already huge. I did one autobiography covering my wrestling career. And I've done another autobiography covering my film career. And each one I start back when I was born. Uh, we didn't go back to that. I was born in the city of San Fernando, in the San Fernando Hospital, uh, the same town where Plan 9 from Outer Space takes place. Uh, and I was born there, and I, and I can trace each of my careers to having some roots. You know, when I was born, I, I, I was a very rare baby. I came out with a bruised lip and long blonde hair. So I was given the nickname Gorgeous George when I was just a baby in the hospital. I was a newborn infant. So that was my first wrestling connection. And years later, in 1961, when I was 12 years old, I became friends with Gorgeous George, a wrestler. So each one of my autobiographies starts with my birth and then goes through my life up to the present. And I don't really repeat anything. I just haven't, you know, and they each have interesting titles. You know, uh, one's called Edge of Armageddon, Let Me Die a Legend. That's my film biography. Uh, Rockabilly Bastard, I think the legend leaks on. That's my music uh, autobiography. And Once Upon a Pencil Neck, I believe, is my wrestling uh, autobiography. So, yeah, I just hopefully I can get those finished and in the can and out while I'm still around. Johnny Legend, the soundtrack LP for Teenage Cruisers, which was billed as the first rock and roll porno, includes a couple of tracks by Billy Zoom, Pre-X, and I think might play some as we end the interview with Johnny Legend. We're still here with Johnny Legend on an Ardbart Human Survey Radio show. What was Billy Zoom like pre-X? What was he like before he was in the band pre-X? Before I get to that story, I wanted to make one, because not too many people in the world know this. Quentin Tarantino, who, as you know, I got involved with back in 94 and 95, 
he was a huge fanatic of the soundtrack album. He told me he listened to it every day for about 25 years, and the grooves were out. But he, that's why he used the Charlie Feather song that's from, the, from Teenage Cruisers. He used it in one of the Kill Bill movies, and it's because of the Teenage Cruiser soundtrack album. And the last time I saw him and had time to talk to him, he confessed that to me. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Now, Billy Zoom was original member of the Rolling Rock Rebels, which was the band we formed back in 1974. That was the first rockabilly band of the modern age. I moved in with Ray Campy and Ronnie Weiser, and, I, and they were recording or trying to recreate the sun sound, and they were doing the very, very first Rolling Rock recordings, and I stood up one day and said, we have to form a live band, period. This is too good to be keeping it like a lab experiment in the recording studio. So we sent out an open invitation to everybody in town who thought they could fit in. Now, Billy Zoom showed up like on the first day as, as to be our lead guitarist, which I thought was great. So we became friends in 74, and he was the actual lead guitarist of the Rolling Rock Rebels. The band had six members, five lead singers and a drummer. The band members were myself, Roland Colin Winsky, uh, Wild Man Tony Khan was our guest, Ray Campy on stand-up bass, and Billy Zoom on lead guitar. And all five of us sang lead except for the drummer. So we each could only do three songs per set, and that was a 15-song set. So those songs by Billy Zoom were ones we used to do live back in 74. And then he formed, after that, the Billy Zoom trio while Ray went on and, and formed Ray Campy and his Rockabilly Rebels. But those were byproducts that came after the original Rolling Rock Rebels. And Zoom and I were very good friends, and a lot of people don't know this. Zoom worked a lot on the movie Teenage Cruisers. He does a lot of the incidental voices in the background. Whenever you hear us go cruising, 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 that's me and Billy Zoom, multi-track. And he did a lot of the incidental instrumental stuff that's in there. And so that's why those songs are on that soundtrack, just to let you know. He was very happy to have them in there. Johnny Legend, how did you get into Rockabilly? I thought you were garage rock all the way. How did you get into Rockabilly? How did you get so was, into Rockabilly? I was anything all the way. I, uh, you know, I was, I was going to high school in that very critical period of 64, 5, 6 with the British invasion and the very beginning of the drug, you know, Sunset Strip scene. <laughs> and I've been a musician since the age of five. I started off playing violin at the age of five. Then I switched to accordion when I was around 12 or 13. And then I got to high school, and suddenly I, I had uh, no instruments I could actually play. So I switched very quickly to the electric auto harp and harmonica and decided I was going to be a lead singer. So we, we started a folk rock band back then because that's what was going on at the time. And my brother was a very prolific songwriter. He played 12-string. Pete Cicero was in the band, the guy I keep talking about, who wrote all of these great songs. And we had three guys that were 17 and two that were 15, and we had a band called The Seeds of Time, which for a while Sky Saxon used to threaten to sue us. Um, but, yeah, I was a, that, that, there wasn't even so much garage rock, even though we rehearsed in a garage. We were like a small-town band that was doing folk rock with a lot of harmonies. And over the years... We became an art rock band, then we became kind of a, uh, a heavy Yardbirds type of group for a while called Shadow Legend. How's that for irony? Um, and that, but I always was a big oldies fanatic. Not so much oldies, but I was a, you know, a guy who loved Bill Haley, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis. And I, and I was kind of like a schizoid double life I was leading where I was a fanatic about 50s and early 60s and Elvis and everything and doing these other kinds of groups. So finally in the early 70s, I just... Got through, I, I got rid of all those other types of groups and just started doing 50s rock and roll. I originally started a band called Blue Midnight where we did all 50s 
50s and 60s songs, but we did our own versions of them. We weren't like Sean and I or some comedy group. And then I got to be friends with Ron, Ron Weiser and Art LeBeau, and we, and we did a big benefit at Chino where we played with uh, uh, Dorsey Burnett uh, and, you know, Bobby Day, who did Rock and Robin and all these people. So I was a Roots guy for a long time, and then, I, you know, I, I was a huge Rockabilly fan, and then I just slowly evolved in the early 70s into Johnny Legend, a, you know, Rockabilly star. What can I tell you? Do you have any uh, interaction? I was going to mention that oh. happened along the way there, and now I'm forgetting it. Well, but, uh, do you ever have any interaction with Scotty Moore? Oh, I thought I was going to tell you. This is another thing that not many people know about. It's the answer to a trivia question that nobody ever asks, and that is, uh, you, if you've seen the Doors movie or ever read up on them, you know that they, the very first night they drove up from Venice Beach and they played on the Sunset Strip at a place called the London Fog. You may know that it's documented in the movie and everything, Oliver Stone's movie. And you left your and you left and you London Fog. And you left your harmonica there, right? The very first show. Are we still on? You left your harmonica there, right, Johnny Legend? Okay. Well, the answer to the trivia question. Did you hear the question? No. Oh. Who was playing at the London Fog the night before the Doors drove up from Venice Beach and played their very first gig on the Sunset Strip? The Seeds of Time from California, not the Seeds of Time from Vancouver, B.C., Canada. Exactly, and it was me. So I was there the night before the Doors drove up and played their very first gig, and I came back the next night to see them play because I left my electric auto heart behind, and luckily Ray Manzarek had found it and put it aside and, 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 and had it and went and got it for me the next day so it's, nobody stole my electric auto harp. And back then, I was too young to actually go into the club. I could play the club, but I couldn't go into it. So I had to stand on the sidewalk for, for the first night and for several weeks watching the Doors play their shows from the sidewalk because the club had an open door so you could watch the entire set from Sunset Boulevard out in front. So that's just another interesting piece of folklore from the late... 66 or early 67. And we're speaking here to Johnny Legend, the rockabilly bastard. Rockabilly, Scotty Moore. Did you ever enter any interactions with Scotty Moore at all, Johnny Legend? No, I don't think so. Believe it or not, I got close to a few of the Elvis people. Uh, I was I was one time I was over in England with uh, uh, Rocky Burnett had had a couple of the Sun people with him, but not Scotty Moore, I don't believe. So I got close. I, I had a run-in with the Memphis Mafia one night. Uh, that was kind of interesting in the parking lot of an Elvis show. Um, but I never got close enough to deal with Scotty or those guys. I always wanted to. Um, but that, that's about as close as I got, you know. And I would like to mention before we close that I do have a new CD out, which is full of uh, very innovative stuff and, and, you know, classic rockabilly rock and roll songs called I Itch Like a Son of a Bitch. And believe it or not, one of the songs on the on the CD I'm proudest of is called Scarecrow. And what I did was I re, I did a remake of a song that was originally in Scarecrow Romney Marsh on Wild World of Disney uh, back in '64, starring Patrick McGowan. It was the first Scarecrow Romney Marsh movie, and Terry Gilkeyson, who is Tony Gilkeyson's father, wrote and recorded this great song that I re-recorded last year and put on my new CD called Scarecrow. So I'm very, and I sent it to Tony, and he said his father would have been very proud of it. So that's just one of the tracks, along with Mexican Love and I Itch and all these. I also did a remake of One Way or Another, which I don't know if you've heard that yet. I uh, did have a chance to be able to find one of the songs of I Itch, 3D Daddy, Johnny Legend. 
that's one of my original Rolling Rock songs that I originally recorded with Billy Zoom that I re-recorded last year because I felt I didn't really do it justice the first time around. So I don't do that very often, but I did re-record 3D Daddy and I re-recorded Mexican Love because I wasn't real happy. And I've got a re-recording of Pipeline that's never been released that is the actual version I think does justice to the, the vocal version of Pipeline. So. And I was going to follow that up with Billy Zoom Bad Boy. Yeah, and then gonna. Great, what can you say about Bill, What can you say about that particular track? What did I think of it? Oh, what can you tell the people about Bad Boy Billy Zoom? Okay, I that's a, that's a song I literally used in the movie Teenage Cruisers. I used it during the John Holmes pool scene, and so it's in the movie. I think I even edited it two or three times to get it to run the full length of the scene, and it's also on the soundtrack album. That was a, a, an original, I believe, by Billy that he was doing back then uh, that was just a great song. I used it in the movie, so it's on the soundtrack album. Some of the songs on the soundtrack album aren't actually in the movie because I was doing kind of a tribute to Rolling Rock and a tribute to the movie at the same time. That's why there's a Blaster song on the soundtrack album when they didn't even exist when the movie was made. Johnny Legend, what can you tell the people about Zappa rarities? For instance, Tim Carey wrote The World's Greatest Sinner, which was scored by Frank Zappa. What can you tell the people, Johnny Legend, about Frank Zappa, Tim Carey, World's Greatest Sinner, Zappa rarities, Zappa rarities? Well, some of the stuff is on YouTube. You know, some of the stuff like Zappa on the Steve Allen show, those are all before he was kind of famous and a few other things he did back then. Um, I was hanging around the edges of the Zappa scene. I actually spent a whole evening at his house one time. A girlfriend of mine named Madeline Ridley, who I haven't seen in over 20 years now, and she was a punk rock singer in the 70s. Uh, but back in the late 60s, I, she, one night I went out with She told me to just come by and pick her up. We were going somewhere. She wouldn't tell me where. And we got in the car, and we drove, I believe, somewhere in Laurel Canyon, got out, went, knocked on the door, and Zappa answered the door. Uh, it was a real shock for me because she would not tell me where we were going. And he just let us come in, and we spent about four or five hours there just hanging around chewing the fat with Zappa. I had a close friend of mine who played him some of his original songs, and he talked politics. He actually had some interesting, very right-wing uh points of view, which I think have been documented over the years, but, you know, I, I actually saw him before he was famous. I got to see the Mothers of Invention one night when they were completely unknown on the Sunset Strip when they came in at the last minute to fill in for Modern Folk Quartet, who had to cancel a show. That's one of my favorite nights on the Sunset Strip. I went to see MFQ, the Modern Folk Quartet, and I get, I get in the club with a fake ID. It was called The Trip. You've probably heard of it. It later became the Playboy Club. And the MC gets up at the beginning of the night and says, okay, I'm going to, I get away a little bummer on you people because the modern folk quartet had to cancel, uh, they, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you can all have a refund if you want, but we got two local bands. I think you're really going to like them if you want to stay and hear them. Their names are Love and the Mothers. And these two were totally unknown bands that got in and filled into the night. So that's the first time I actually got to see the Mothers and Love. And I thought it was pretty amazing because I'd run into one of the members of Love a few years earlier when they were the grassroots. And then I became very close friends with Ray Collins for the next 25 years, the lead singer of the Mothers. We were very close, lived across the street from each other in the late 70s. And uh, 
we, we, you know, we were still palling around up until he passed away a few years ago. So he was a great, great guy that I got to be good friends with. How about the Star Trekkers? And rest in peace, Leonard Nimoy. What can you tell people about the Star Trekkers? DeForest Kelly, Suicide Theater. What about Spock? What can you say about the Star Trekkers and their movie um, involvement? Good question. Well, about all I can say is uh, I was not a big Star Trek fan, um, I was, I, back in the 80s when I was doing Rhino Video and I was doing TV Turkeys, I discovered that, I gave that little short subject the name Suicide Theater, and it was great because over the years, Leonard Maltman and all these people actually bought it and assumed there was this actual TV show on once called Suicide Theater. Now, if you think about that, every week someone's going to commit suicide. I just thought it was hysterical because I just made it up because I found a DeForest Kelly thing from the early 50s. And some friends of mine gave it to DeForest Kelly on VHS, and he sent me an autographed photo thanking me for it and everything. And there are actual photos up that I have of him watching it at home with his wife. Uh, which is, you know, I thought was very heartrending. Then, going into the 90s, I had the same agent as George Takai and James Doohan. So we had Steve Stevens Sr. He was our agent. So I used to run into them at parties and things like that. And that was my connection to them. But I never had too much of a connection other than I put out that pretty great DVD back in 2010 called Trek Stars Go West which is a collection of westerns featuring Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, James Doohan, and DeForest Kelly. That's a two-disc DVD set I put out on a major Canadian label, as a matter of fact, back in 2010. Uh, that, was, that was after the DVD scene in this country had totally evaporated, so I had to go to a major Canadian label to release my last three DVDs. Abul, Adu, Abdullah the Butcher has a ribs place in Atlanta. What other wrestlers have food places? Well, that's a good question. Um, Abdullah is the one I know for sure. Uh, Christ, I'd have, to, I'd have to put on my thinking cap. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm sure there are other wrestlers who have restaurants and things. I, you know, Gorgeous George used to have a bar restaurant called Gorgeous George's Ringside. That was back in 61 and 2. It wasn't around for very long, and it was a failure. But, um, uh, yeah, and, I, and I've been around Abdullah. You've seen photos of me with him on Facebook, and we've been at the Chiller Convention together. I've never been to his restaurant. I kind of wish I had. Um, but I cannot off the top of my head name any wrestlers who also have restaurants, although I'm sure they're out there. Johnny Legend, was Andy Kaufman into punk? He has a mohawk at the premiere of your movie. Was Andy Kaufman into punk? And is there any new rare Kaufman stuff that has surfaced? The only Well, you'd have to look up my sister. She's also on Facebook, Lynn Margulies, and look up. She has a website. Uh, she was Andy's girlfriend. Courtney Love plays her in the movie with Jim Carrey. And so she's been kind of the caretaker of all the other Andy stuff over the years, and she's still putting out some rare DVDs of him wrestling women and other things like that. And she works with Bob Zamuda uh, on some of these things, so she's been kind of the caretaker of that whole thing. If I were, if I were people, I would just look her up, just Google her name, uh, look her up on Facebook, uh, look look up look up her website, and uh, she's she was Andy's, you know girlfriend during those alleged last years but when he allegedly passed away i i still like to say that um and what was your earlier question about andy was um, he into punk rock like he is a mohawk oh. at the premiere of breck at the uh, what was your movie you know what am i alluding to here he has a mohawk you no know, you're at, talking about you're talking about the film i made my breakfast with Blassie, 
which was his last actual movie. He he had one more movie called I'm from Hollywood that he started working on with my sister as a collaboration. All it didn't get out till many years after he allegedly passed away. But um, then my sister met him on camera while we were filming that. What happened is, once again, we had a premiere at the New Art. We're the same place where we had the revival of uh, Teenage Cruisers. So we had a premiere of the movie. Actually, and a lot of people that night saw him in the Mohawk and said, oh, Andy's going into this punk rock thing, including a lot of his, his, his co-stars from Taxi. They assumed that. Actually, he'd been getting cancer treatments. So he lost a lot of his hair, and he actually had to adopt that mohawk as a as as, as a hairstyle at the time. Uh, but he just went ahead with the idea that he was in a punk rock phase, and he was in the punk rock like everything else. You know, he was into everything on earth. So punk had already been around since the seventies by then. So yeah, of course he was. You know, I don't know if he was into punk as much as he was into Elvis, but. You could say he was into a little bit of everything. You mentioned the waterfront. You mentioned he quote allegedly passed away. What are your theories on that? Allegedly passed away. I just like to keep that going because uh, there's been a whole lot of things lately. There was a big thing a few years ago, uh, just a year or so ago. A very good girlfriend of mine in, in, New York, in the New York area, in the Brooklyn area, made an appearance with Andy's brother at a nightclub as Andy's daughter. And that got this whole thing going again. It got it showed up on TMZ and, and Variety. It showed up on all the talk shows. It was this huge nationwide thing about, oh, my God, what's going on? Is Andy still alive? And uh, there have been some very funny quotes over the years because in the official taxi book, they talked about Andy's filmography, which, as you know, is very brief. He made Heartbeeps. Uh, he made In God We Trust. And a couple other very, you know, he had very, very short uh, filmography, including my breakfast with Blassie. But when they dis- when they discuss my breakfast with Blassie, it says which he wrote and directed using the pseudonym Johnny Legend, which is one of my favorite misprints of all time. So I like to say to people, well, yeah, that's kind of true to a certain extent, and uh, that's why I always like to say allegedly because I'm I'm not one of these people who goes back and because when this thing flared up a year or so ago, they actually went back. Uh, to the to the person, uh, I think they went back to the undertaker or the guy who did the autopsy, supposedly, allegedly did the autopsy, and they went back to all these friends of Andy saying, well, is he really dead? What what really happened? So I like I, I, I will say allegedly now and forever when he allegedly passed away. I like the whole idea of that. Johnny Legend, thanks so much for phoning into the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. Really appreciate it. One more time, can you tell the people about your YouTube link? emails and how to get them sent to you okay the best thing to do is to contact me at my at my email address uh, johnnylegendrocks at gmail.com or send me a message on facebook if you send me a friend request i probably won't see it ever because i got a thousand i'm backed up a thousand and i'm almost at my five thousand limit so you need to send me an actual you know that you can send a message on facebook i believe I, I think you can still send a message to a person that you're not even friends with but the best thing to do is just get a hold of me by by Gmail, and I'll let you know what's going on with the whole YouTube thing. Because, like I say, there's that's a that's a kind of labor of love that I have a, a several hundred fanatics around the world who collect those, and they wait would they wait you know every day they you know they they watch their emails to see if a new collection has come for me. So it's so great too. The, the titles are great too, like the best of the Adam Age Television Part Four, Armageddon. Now he did stuff on Charles Bronson. 
so yeah, awesome. Now and then, don't forget that. And that was the best of Adam H. Television. And uh, yeah, I did a whole Ed Wood thing. I'm about to re- I'm about to reissue the Bronson. It's a five parter now, and it's called the the first part is called the first dirty half a dozen years, which is a play on you know one of his movies. And then I've got a, a one called Once Upon a Time in the Hollywood which is kind of the way Bronson used to talk a little bit, even though he made a movie called Once Upon a Time in the West, and I'm calling it Once Upon a Time in the Hollywood, because it covers Bronson's entire career from 1951, the first minute he appeared on a screen, till 1999, the last minute he appeared on a screen in Family of Cops 3. And I've been doing links of popping lately, uh, which, is, which you've seen, which is pretty astounding, and I just did a three-part tribute to James Best, because I didn't like the fact that all the trades and people were, were saying, Dukes of Hazard star dies, as if that was the only thing he ever did. So I went back and recreated his whole 65-year career, which started in 1950, believe it or not. Johnny Legend, going to end right now with your track, 3D Daddy, then going to play Billy Zoom, Bad Boy, and if we have time, going to kick into Johnny Legend right now. What's Johnny Legend right now? Okay, that was part of a, a you know Gene Vincent got involved in Rolling Rock in the last few years of his of his uh, uh, time on Earth uh, before he allegedly passed away. I, lo- I like to say. Also, if you've seen those photos of me in the black leather outfit, uh, Ron, he willed his outfit to Ron Weiser, and I was the only one who was ever allowed to wear it for photos and things in the seventies. I was very proud of that. So Ron did a tribute to Gene Vincent with all of the top Rolling Rock stars, and I re-recorded right now. That was my main track that I did, and I live on a lot of my shows, I still I still perform the song Black Leather Rebel, which is a tribute to Gene Vincent, written by Rock and Ronnie Weiser. Uh, somebody else recorded it. I think it was uh, uh, Johnny, uh, the star of Rock Baby Rocket. Uh, you know, one of them, I've got him having a blackout here. You know, Johnny, the famous rockabilly star. Uh, Johnny Holiday? Johnny Holiday? No, 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 no. No, no, Johnny Holiday's still with us. This is another guy who passed away. But he started in Rock Baby Rocket, the 1957 Texas Rockabilly movie. Uh, God, I, I'm, I'm feeling like a real idiot. He did Hot Rocks, uh, Crazy Crazy Lovin', and uh, Wild, Wild Wild Women. Uh, he's the guy who originally recorded them and put them out. And I, he was originally an idol of mine back in the early 70s. And, and I'm, I'm suddenly forgetting his last name. Well, we, haven't, for- we haven't forgotten your name, Johnny Legend. Thank you so much for phoning the Art of Water Human Service Radio Show. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all? Uh, no, get in, keep in touch with reality. Get in touch with me if you'd like to. And uh, don't, don't, you know, don't throw in the towel. Use it to wipe your sweat off. And, uh, you know, with me, it's better great than never. And uh, what can I say? Hey, 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 you know, uh, like I said, I'm the most famous person you never heard of, but that's just a... A catchy line I like to use. I'm the self-made man, the man-made myth, the million-dollar maniac right here. The rockabilly bastard. The rockabilly bastard. Yeah. And here's 3D Daddy by Johnny Legend. Thanks so much, Johnny Legend, and doot-doot-a-loot-doo. Dot-dot. Bye-bye. Class. Well, if you're looking for a daddy, mama, all you gotta do is ask. Don't need no glasses, ain't it plain to see? Don't need no glasses, ain't it plain to see? I got eyes for you, now just what do you got for me? 
I said, hop, skip, don't you give me no lip, just scoot the boot, a rooty tooty, baby, mama, I'm a 3D daddy, it's crazy as can be. Well, if you want to get crazy, you couldn't do much better than me. Well, I'm a midnight daddy, did I dig what I'm putting down? Well, I'm a midnight daddy, and I strike without a sound. Whatever lights come on, you won't see me around. I said, ding dong, I won't do you no wrong. Got a candy stick last all night long. I'm a ding dong daddy, gonna bounce you on my knee. Well, if you wanna get crazy, let's do it in 3D. Oh, I said 3D daddy, daddy, 3D daddy, daddy. Daddy, if you wanna rock it, baby, let's do it in 3D. All right, woo! Well, I'm a mad dog daddy and I'm coming to get you. Well, I'm a mad dog daddy and I'm coming to get you. You'll be a mad dog mama when this old daddy's through. Well, 3D daddy, daddy, 3D daddy, daddy, come on 3D mamas, I want to make love to you. 3D daddy!
And you're still listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and Denardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Johnny Legend with Right Now. Before that, Bad Boy by Billy Zoom. And before that, we had some good old Johnny Legend on the Nardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Johnny Legend. And to end the Nardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show, have something to give away to you, the listeners right now. Have some tickets to Built to Spill and Slam Dunk tomorrow night at the Commodore Ballroom. If you want to go to that gig for free, your name will be at the door on the guest list. The doors are at 8 p.m. The show's at 9.30. Phone right now, 604 604- 822-2487. That's 604-UBC-CITR. 604-822-2487. 604-UBC-CITR. If you want some free tickets, again, your name will be on the guest list to go see Built to Spill and Slam Dunk tomorrow night at the Commodore in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Give us a call. And right now, to end an Ardwarda Human Serviette radio show, here's a bit more Johnny Legend with Rubber... R- R- room! Mm-hmm. 